Now, a number of years ago, I was asking this question for real. How should you relate to the future King of England? I was asking it because I was working as a headhunter, and our firm had been retained by the Prince of Wales Charities to find a chief executive for the charity that was very close to his heart. And we went through our usual process. We did an extensive search. We found some candidates. We interviewed them. And then we, we got a shortlist together. And this shortlist were interviewed by a panel, including a Scottish earl who lived in a real castle. But the appointment couldn't be made without an interview with the prince. So, uh, and he hadn't been in, directly involved until that point. So our candidate needed to go to a palace and talk to a prince as part of his interview. Now, this wasn't what we normally did. How do you do that? What's the correct way to address royalty? It was important for our candidate to relate appropriately, or he could mess up the whole process. So we got a very clear briefing of what he was supposed to do from the prince's staff, and everything went well. Now, the Prince of Wales is just a man, and in his pyjamas, he's the same as the rest of us. What about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the living God? He is the definition of majesty. How are we supposed to relate to him? This was something that God's people, the Israelites, had to learn. They lived in Egypt for generations, and when it came to religion, they weren't exactly a blank sheet. Egypt was an environment with a system of religion that was complex and entrenched. And it's referred to as idolatry. It was the worship using idols. And now the Israelites were, had come out of Egypt and they're on their way to a promised land called Canaan. But guess what? The Canaanites live there and they too have a complex, entrenched system of idols. But Israel are not supposed to, to worship God like that. They were to have no other gods before the Lord. That was the first commandment. And this word, Lord, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, we see it's there in small capital letters. Verse 2, I am the Lord, your God. In the original language, is really a name. And the name is Yahweh, Yahweh. And this name is a special name that God had given to Moses to communicate something about himself. It means, I am. I am who I am. I just am. By definition, that means he's the only God. He's the one who is. The others are the ones who isn't. He's self-defining. He doesn't need to define himself as the God of war or the God of love or the God of the sun or the God of fertility. He just is. And there is no other. So he says, first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That laid the foundation for all the other commands. And this idea of having one God who covered all the bases was completely unique in the ancient world. So the Israelites had to learn how to relate to him. And the Ten Commandments were the answer to that question, how should you relate? These are ten core principles for how to live as free people, now that they've been set free. They're sometimes called the, divided into the two tables of the law. The first four commandments are referred to as the first table. And they describe how we are to relate to God, the, if you like, the vertical axis. One God, no idols, honour God's name, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those first four were the first table. And then the second six commandments, sometimes called the second table of the law, and they're all about how we relate to one another. 
don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't bear false testimony, don't cover. Now these ten guiding principles are an expansion of the two great commandments that Jesus gave. Jesus said there's really two great commandments. The first one is love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And the second commandment is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Those are the two great ones. But the ten kind of unpack it further. And then, for further illustration, the Old Testament gives 601 detailed commandments to kind of show how it works out in everyday life. 601 little laws to show what keeping these commandments look like in practice. So how many laws are there in the Old Testament? 613 is the traditional answer. The two great ones, the Ten Commandments, and the 601 unpacking ones. So there is more than one kosher restaurant in the world called 613. There used to be one in the west, west End of London. This is a restaurant in Memphis, kosher rest, Jewish restaurant, called Table 613, showing that they like to keep all the commandments. So you won't go there and get shellfish, pork, you know, no bacon. Now the first four commandments teach us the answer to this question. How should we relate to God? And it is so important for us to think about this today. Especially in this culture, where respect, honour, and a sense of awe are almost gone. There was a time when doctors, teachers, police, magistrates could count on being given respect in our culture no longer. Now of course, Respect for those people has sometimes been undermined by some of the people in those professions. But the point is, it's getting harder and harder for us to understand what reverence and awe feels like. We almost don't have a category for it anymore. Even the word awesome has been debased, as in this example. I got the X-Men DVD box set for £5. That's awesome. Now, it's a good deal, but it's not awesome kind of losing all our categories, all our vocab gets debased. So it's really important that we understand, if we want to be God's people, if we want to be real Christians, how to relate to God. Not to the future king of England, but to the present king of everything. And today we're looking at the second and the third commandments. So if you haven't got your Bible open, please do turn back to Exodus 20, which in our church Bibles is on page 73. And we're thinking about these, the two Let me say, the most misunderstood and the most neglected commandments. The second commandment is the most misunderstood, and the third one is the most neglected. Here's the second commandment. Don't worship the true God falsely. Don't worship the true God falsely. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, why do I say this is the most misunderstood of all the commandments? Because it's not actually clear what is being prohibited. Last week, we thought about the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And on the surface, this looks like kind of just a restatement of the same thing. You know, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any idols. What's the difference? 
And a lot of people have concluded that those first two are in fact one commandment. Uh, Anyone here who's from a Roman Catholic background, or Jewish, or Lutheran, those traditions combine the first two commandments into one. So to get ten commandments, they have to split the final one into two. So the ninth commandment is, you shall not covet your neighbour's house. And the tenth is, you shall not covet all the other things. Now those of you who stay up late at night, looking at the Right Move website may instinctively feel that coveting a house is such a big temptation that it does deserve a commandment all of its own. I'm not going to make any gender stereotyping comments about people who look at the Right Move website. But there is another way of looking at this, and it seems to make better sense. The first commandment forbids or prohibits following any other gods, and the second commandment prohibits worshipping the true God falsely. Let me just say that again. The first commandment is against worshipping any other gods. And the second commandment is, a, is against worshipping the true God falsely. Do not worship the true God falsely. We see how this works out in that grim chapter that Laura just read for us. And I have to say, if you're going to read Exodus 32, what better accent to read it with than a Northern Irish one? <laughs> it's a tragic episode of the golden calf. While Moses was up the mountain receiving the commandments and laws of God from God himself in an awe-inspiring display of God's presence, he came down with the tablets written with the finger of God on stone. The people got impatient. They didn't want to wait on God's timetable. They ganged up on Moses' brother, Aaron, forced him into a corner and pressured him into making a model out of earrings. It's a lot of earrings. Of course, we don't know how big the model was. A model of a calf out of gold. That isn't the actual one, by the way. Something like it. Egyptians had these all over the place. Now, it's important to realise that this golden calf is not the introduction of a sort of plan B God. It's just a representation of the true God. And that's what the commandment prohibits. In Exodus 32... It says things like, uh, they say, this calf brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Using exactly the same phrase that God had used of himself in chapter 20. And then in in chapter 32 verse 5, Aaron builds an altar and he says, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So now we've got a representation of Yahweh. He looks just like a calf. The gold calf is a representation of God, not an alternative. Now, of course, these people are not stupid. They know they just made it. They don't really think that that physical thing had rescued them from Egypt. They know it's just a model, but this is the way that ancient people think about gods. They think that the idol is somehow like a hotline. It's a connection. It connects you to the invisible world where the gods live. So they would make something like this, a priest would come, would announce some incantations over it, maybe do a special ceremony, and at that moment the ancient people believed that the idol was a functioning channel to God. You've just got cable. You're in front of that God and whatever you do, the gods can see. So why did the Israelites make this calf? Because this is what their culture does. This is what all the neighbours do. Everybody has idols. 
Not to do this in the ancient world is to look like a real weirdo. So by forbidding the use of idols, God is calling them to something deeply countercultural. It is to make them look like a nation of weirdos. But come on, you say, what is so attractive about idolatry? They've just been rescued from Egypt, for goodness sake. They've just seen the plagues. They've just seen the Lord lead them through the wilderness in a pillar of fire at night. They've seen fire come down on the top of the Mount of Mount Sinai. They'd heard this terrifying voice speaking. I mean, really, why do you need to make a calf at this moment? What do they see in it? Have you ever thought this about someone's new girlfriend or boyfriend? What, what do you see in them? What on earth were you thinking? You look at the calf, you think, what, what did you see in that? Well, the Old Testament scholar, Douglas Stewart, describes lots of reasons why people in the ancient world were attracted to idol worship. And I just want to give you seven of those reasons. Seven attractions of idolatry. Idolatry was greedy, easy, normal, tidy, sexy, piggy, and certainty. Greedy. Idolatry was totally materialistic. They believed that the gods could do anything they wanted except feed themselves. So what, can, what leverage do you have as a human being? Food. You get to be a feeder. So if you feed a god, the god is obligated to do what you want. It's a way to get what you want. Cash, crops, stuff, a spouse. You want good stuff? Feed the gods. It's easy. Idolatry doesn't make any demands on the worshipper, or not much, just apart from food. It did not demand a changed life. At Sinai, the Israelites take upon themselves an obligation to live as a holy people. But idolatry is easy. You don't have to do that. They even had local shrines all over the place, side of the road, top of the hill. So you didn't have to travel far. Idolatry could fit in with the rest of your schedule and not make too many demands on you. It was easy. And by contrast, worshipping the true God was pretty difficult. You had to travel three times a year to a single location, probably miles away. And you're not supposed to worship anywhere in the land except in that approved sanctuary. Normal. This is what everybody did in the ancient world, without exception. It's made it seem entirely normal. The Canaanites were great farmers. They were successful. If you ask a Canaanite farmer, stand by the side of the road with a bit of straw in his mouth, what's the secret of your farming success? He would give you a religious explanation. Well, I make offerings to Baal. I boil a goat kid in its mother's milk. And the gods kind of like that stuff. I sow a crop in a special pattern on the ground with two different kinds of plant seeds. So they sort of mingle together. And then that creates fertility. The gods like that sort of stuff. Idolatry seemed to work. That's what everybody did. It was also tidy. It's logical. To ancient people, it was kind of bizarre to think there could be one god who did everything. Sort of a GP. A general practitioner god. They like to have specialists. You know, I've got obs and gyne. I've got medicine. I've got geriatrics. Here you've got gods for all the different divisions. And the Israelites bought into this. So everybody did. They believed in multiple gods. Everyone's a specialist in some part of the world. That's what looked most logical to them. And later on in the Old Testament, you find that the Israelites kind of embraced this idea. So they had Yahweh as their national god, 
get-out-of-jail-free card, but if you want to get your crops to grow, you need bail to bail you out. Sorry, that wasn't in the script. They're sexy. Idolatry provides worshippers with something tangible they can look at, touch, and feel, and kiss. It's a whole industry of image-making. It appeals to the sensual side of us. It's hard to appreciate the beauty of the living God when you can't see him. He's not made of gold. And temple prostitution was often part of worship. So they'd have temple prostitutes who were hanging around, and a a worshipper would go and engage in ritual sex, performed in order to stimulate the gods who were watching to produce fertility on earth. Imagine how many male customers were fairly devout worshippers at such places. Piggy. Pigging out on meat feasts typified pagan worship. Heavy drinking, drunkenness are considered proper in, in idol worship because getting wasted is, being, is part of being generous to a god. And finally, certainty. There's a kind of guarantee here. If I do A, I'm going to get B. Once that statue of a god has been carved, there's a hotline and this god is, gods are looking at me through that, the eyes of that calf. Whatever I do is being transmitted accurately up there. It's guaranteed. Idolatry is greedy, easy, normal, tidy, sexy, piggy, and it offers certainty. And you know what that adds up to? The seven dwarfs. I can never remember all their names, but I'm sure one of them is probably called Greedy. Now, a lot of that is kind of historical, but I know that at least two of you enjoy a lot of historical details. But what is the essence of this? How do you boil it all down? Here's what I think. Idolatry is worshipping God on our terms. It's worshipping God on our terms. It's all about us. And this is where it starts to bite. Because the attraction of idolatry is to make God less than he really is. To make him more palatable. To smooth off the rough edges. To ignore those aspects of God that we don't like. Or that don't fit our logic. To give him a makeover and a culturally acceptable face. In the first Stepford Wives film, a group of men in the town of Stepford, with the help of a Disney engineer, replace their wives with robots. These robots are pretty, they can bake, and they never argue back. Every one of those wives is a domestic goddess who does whatever the man desires and never argues. Now, to some men... The idea of a Stepford wife might be appealing, but the reality would be appalling. Without someone to challenge you, push you back, come after you, change your mind, you can't have a real relationship. And it's like this with God. For us to have a relationship with God, he has to be able to challenge us, to say things we don't like at first, because only such a God can actually forgive us. We need an angry personal God as well as a beautiful forgiving God. A Stepford God can't forgive you any more than a mirror can forgive you. And I'm finding the mirror is less and less forgiving as years go by. But this is what idolatry does. It worships God on our terms. It is DIY, B&Q religion. It suits us. It starts when we think like this. I like to think of God as... See that? You're determining who God is. It fits in with what everybody else is saying in the culture. It comforts and it doesn't challenge. 
And here is why idolatry, the second commandment, is so serious. Verse 5 and 6. Because the Lord is a jealous God, and because he visits iniquity on the children. Now this sounds very harsh, doesn't it? Jealous. Isn't jealousy a bad thing? Well, it all depends. There's lots of things in life you can share. We're always telling our children to share their toys. and I'm always being told to share my food with the children. But there are some things that you shouldn't share. There are some things that are exclusive, that are special, that have to be protected jealously. Marriage is an exclusive love relationship. And a healthy degree of jealousy is a sign that someone loves you passionately. If a spouse doesn't really care who you're flirting with or hanging around with, they're probably no longer in love. Healthy jealousy is a sign of passionate love. And it is amazing to think that the living God would love you with that kind of intensity. So idolatry is a slap in the face to his wonderful love and his faithfulness. The second reason why idolatry is so serious is the generational impact. Again, we need to understand what this is saying and what it's not saying. It's not saying that God punishes innocent children for what their parents did. In fact, the law of God expressly forbids that in Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. No. This text is saying that if successive generations keep on committing the same sins that they learned from their parents, God will punish generation after generation until they stop. And we know how this works in society. You get generational patterns of sin that are passed on in families. The children of abusers often turn out to be abusers themselves. Sin has a vicious way of perpetuating itself. We are both victims and agents. But contrasted to that ugly picture is God's real wish. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is what God really wants. To have his people remain loyal forever. So that he can show them the rich blessings of his loyalty to them. Now what about us? I'm fairly confident that the last time you were in a museum and you saw an idol that someone had dug up in Egypt or Iraq or somewhere, you bought past a jackal or a calf or a totem pole, you probably didn't feel a secret urge to kneel down, say some prayers, and sacrifice a lamb. Did you? So what is our version of this ancient sin? Remember, the essence of idolatry is worshipping the true God falsely. Worshipping God on our terms. I wonder if we are too drawn to aspects of God that are attractive to our culture and seem to fit, but we ignore other aspects, minimize them, downplay them, and that then shapes the way we live as Christians. We're very comfortable with the idea of grace, love, compassion, care, all true qualities of God. We're not so comfortable with his awesome power and holiness. We modern Christians are tempted to worship God as the forgiving Father, but to forget his radical holiness and his demands for complete loyalty. Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites as a burning fire, 
A fire that never went out. A consuming fire. Now that is an image of awesome holiness. Burning, refining, purifying. When Moses first encountered him, God appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. And the bush was burning, but it wasn't consumed. And God called to him, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you're standing is holy ground. You don't just wander up to God. He's a God that's so holy, he's of purer eyes than to even look upon sin. A God of absolute moral perfection, truth, integrity. He is awesome. And when he spoke, those who heard his voice begged not to hear it again. Now is this how we worship God? Or do we have a calf? For us, could it be that we emphasize the grace of God at the expense of his holiness? His majesty. Do we fear God? Do we tremble in his presence? Are we pure and devoted to him or kind of slapdash? Are we careful to live our lives in his holy presence? Careful to avoid sin and temptation and if we do fall, deal with it quickly and move on and get rid of all vindictiveness and resentment and bad habits? If you're a Christian, do you worship this God in all his holy majesty or a tame version that you've concocted. How do we approach public worship when we come together on Sundays? Are we ready? Have we had enough sleep? Are we eager to hear from him? Or are we turning up late, half asleep, casual and passive? Have you come to worship God today or just to hang out? What would Moses have felt if he'd listened to our prayers There's a trend amongst modern Christians to make little jokes while we're praying. Really? Do we have any idea who we're talking to? God is not our buddy. He is the Lord. Now, all of this, to say all of this, is not for one moment to take away from the love and grace and kindness of God. Jesus Christ is the friend of sinners. He's the gentle saviour. He's the one who wouldn't break a bruised reed. He reaches out and touches the leper. Not to take away from that, but it is to enhance it. It's to enhance our appreciation for the grace of God. When you have feared the lion, the lamb looks all the more wonderful. And Jesus Christ is both. He's the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain. And that leads us, in closing, I'm going to deal with this much more quickly, to the most neglected commandment, The third one, don't misuse the true God's name. Let's just read it. It's in verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now we can already kind of see how this follows on from the first two commandments. If God is so great that there is to be no other, and if we must relate to him on his terms, not on ours, and domesticate him, then it follows that when we speak about God, we must do so appropriately. So what does taking the name of Yahweh in vain mean? Now the main meaning seems to have been taking uh, someone's name as a guarantee for your own promises. So promising something in the name of God. Giving a legal testimony in God's name. So the basic idea is not to perjure yourself, to lie on oath. But the command is general, and it encompasses any misuse of God's name. 
making light of God's name, making a joke out of it, misrepresenting God's name, mocking it, using the name of Jesus Christ as a swear word or saying, oh my God, speaking about God in any way disrespectfully. Now in our context, we can understand this, you know. People care deeply about certain words. There are certain racial insults that if you use them as a professional football player, get you into a lot of trouble. And rightly so. There are certain sexist slurs and insults that if a man says to a woman, are a disgrace. We know this, so words matter. But people let the name of Jesus, or Christ, or the, the word God, slip through their lips like a common curse word. Now, Christians sometimes give the impression that it's, this, the main problem with this is that it offends us. That's not the main problem. The main problem is that it offends God. It's his name. That's why it's so serious. Because the greatness of an offence is measured against the worth of a person. If an insult to your mother is worse than an insult to your mate, what about an insult to your maker? How does his name become wonderful to us? The same way that a lover's name becomes wonderful to a lover. There was a time when the name Melissa meant nothing to me. I didn't actually know anyone called Melissa, and if I was honest, in my inverted snobbery, I thought it was a bit of a posh name. And then I met someone, and I learned her name was Melissa. And over time, that name became wonderful to me. When I felt I could trust her completely, I felt her passionate love, jealous love. When she brought joy to my heart, when she came to my rescue, situations that were overwhelming, when her constant, faithful love carried on now for 15 years. When you know that someone has done that for you, then then the very name is wonderful. And you want to talk about them in that kind of way. Now that is just a domestic, human, flawed example. How much more does the name of God, especially the name of Jesus, mean to those who are his people? Do you trust him? Can you trust him? Has he brought joy to your life and your heart? Has he come to your rescue in situations that were overwhelming? Is his love faithful, constant and true? The New Testament says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. It's a wonderful name. John Newton was a slave trader in the 18th century. He was also a rapist who hated God and wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He was dramatically changed and converted, and he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And the name that he once hated became the sweetest name in all the world to him. He submitted himself, amazingly, as a candidate for ministry in the Church of England. 
He wanted to be a vicar. And to his surprise, he was accepted. And at that moment, he was really scared. And he wrote to his wife, Oh, what zeal, faith, patience, watchfulness and courage will be needful for my support and guidance. My only hope is in the name and power of Jesus. May that precious name be as ointment poured forth to your soul and mine. May that power be triumphantly manifested in our weakness. And Newton wrote this hymn about the name of Jesus, which captures a lot of what Jesus means to his people. Let's sing it. And as we do, let's renew our commitment to worship the true God truly and to speak his name with reverent love. Let's stand and sing.